The Lord will not allow his church to perish. Nothing will be allowed to destroy the Lord's church. Matthew 16, 18, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It may be that the gates won't stand up against the assault of the church or that the gates of hell will not be able to overcome the church. Either way, the church cannot be destroyed. A wonderful promise. And it applies to the church of God in the Old Testament as much as it does in the New. Never forget, the church did not start in the New Testament. It didn't start at the day of Pentecost. It started in the Garden of Eden. And so the promise that the Lord's building his church and it cannot be destroyed, applies to the Old Testament form of the church, the people of God, the spiritual Israel. And so we will be seeing how uh, the Lord makes sure that that is the case, that the church cannot be destroyed. So we're turning now to Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to be looking this evening at verses 1 to 10. The deliverer provided and, of course, we're looking at the, uh, the origins of Moses. Here's a section, of course, that to a lot of people uh, is just a nice wee story for the kids. Uh, isn't it sweet? Moses and the ark and the bulrushes and so on. Uh, and it's, it's nice for children. Well, it is, of course. We're not denying that for a moment. But this is for adults. This is a step in the eternal purpose of God. This is part of the big picture of what God is doing to bring deliverance ultimately to us through the Messiah. So yes, it's good for the children, but it's even more important for the adults. The deliverer provided. The first thing we see in this portion of Exodus 2 is Moses' parents. They're not named here, but we'll come to that in a moment. This remembers a time of oppression. The, uh, the male children are being destroyed. Israel's under tremendous threat. In the face of the evil perpetrated by Pharaoh, that uh, eventually at the end of chapter 1 slides into just genocide. It's not even the midwives that are to carry out the policy. It's any and every Egyptians to do this. In the face of this uh, incipient genocide, God hasn't forsaken his people. Now, it may be sometimes they were wondering whether he had or not. They were experiencing the things described in chapter 1. may well be sometimes they were thinking, where is God in this? Why is he allowing it? If God loves us, why does he let this happen? They're not the first and they're not the last to ask that question in hard times. And yet God's promise remains. We have it in Hebrews 13, 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And that is true for his people in the Old Testament as much as in the New. It's a word to hold on to in hard times. That though we might not be able to see how it's working out, it remains true. He will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Of course, we need to keep in mind that God is not in a hurry. He doesn't do things according to our time scale. Uh, we read in verse 2, uh, he, uh, she gave birth 
uh, to a son. She gave birth to a son. It's going to be 80 years until that son comes down to Egypt to lead the Israelites out in the Exodus. 80 years. It's not going to be next week or next year. And the purpose of God, it's going to take 80 years before Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. God is not in a hurry. He doesn't work to the timetable we want. And we do have our timetable for God, don't we? The things we want him to do for us, the things we want him to give us, and we want them yesterday, or at least today. And yet God, though he may give us what we are asking, may not give give it to us for some considerable time. We've got to bear in mind the truth of 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. In other words, God does not experience time as we do. In fact, God doesn't experience time. He's outside of it. Our little minds can't take that in, but that is the case. And then Peter goes on, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Because to us, often, God's working does seem slow. And we may well have to listen to the objections of unbelievers, plus the questions and the doubts that might arise in our own minds. God isn't slow, but he doesn't measure time in the way that we do. And we often need to learn patience as the Lord deals with us. Some of us are naturally patient and easygoing, but many of us aren't. You remember when Paul said that he had learned to be content in different circumstances. He learned to be content. It didn't come naturally to Paul. And often that's what we find ourselves saying. We need to learn to be content with God's timing and with all of God's dealings with us. So yes, things have begun to move in Exodus too, but they're not going to move quickly. 80 years still to come. The Lord is beginning to work. In relative obscurity, in the world's terms, these people are nobodies. History knows nothing about them, but God knows them. God has them in his word. Now, for whatever reason, Moses doesn't give us the names here in Exodus. You have to look in other parts of the scripture to find uh, out who they are. A man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. Well, if you turn over to chapter 6, verse 20, uh, it'll tell you who they are. There's Amram, the father, Jochebed, the mother. Uh, And they're actually nephew and aunt. Uh, Amram is a grandson of Levi. Uh, Jochebed is a daughter. Uh, So Amram was marrying his aunt. Now later on uh, in the law of Moses, that will be outlawed, but it wasn't at this stage. Uh, And that's the situation in this family. You might think, first reading, uh, Moses was the first child they had, but he wasn't. Uh, There was Miriam, uh, a sister who's mentioned later on in the account here in chapter 2, though again her name isn't given. 
uh, and there was Aaron as well. Or is it Aaron? Well, whatever he is, uh, Moses had an older brother. So he's the third in the family. God's working. And the crucial thing in all of this is these are people of faith. That's what matters above anything else. Amram and Jochebed are people of faith. And that is evident in their action of hiding the baby. And we don't need to wonder about that. We might think, well, of course, naturally a mother wants to protect her baby. Any mother would do it. What's that got to do with faith? But then you turn up Hebrews 11. There's that great chapter, by faith, by faith, by faith. Hebrews 11:23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him. They were not afraid of the king's edict. It was an act of faith on their part. Mother Jochebed takes center stage here, but both father and mother were people of faith. Faith that was God-given and faith that provided for them a courage to obey God rather than men. And that's what the apostles say in Acts 5.29. When they were threatened by the authorities, you're not to preach. We must obey God rather than men. And here, they're obeying God rather than Pharaoh's edict. Whatever the cost might be for them. And it might have been death, as was the case for the midwives. And you can see similarities with the midwives, can't you? They were women of faith and they defied Pharaoh's edict, potentially at the risk of their lives, though God overruled. And here too, here are parents defying the edict of Pharaoh because of their faith in the Lord. They must obey him. Now it's perhaps important that we keep in mind that within Israel, within this growing nation, there were people of faith, but they weren't all people of faith. It's very uh, interesting uh, when you look at Ezekiel 20. Now, Ezekiel is written centuries later. Much uh, time had passed. But Ezekiel 20 and verse 7 looks back to these days. And the prophet, or God through the prophet, speaks about how Israel had vile images And they were idolaters, many of them. So don't uh, dress Israel up in pretty colors as if they were all fine, godly people. They weren't. There were compromisers among them. There were idolaters, perhaps, going along with the idolatry of Egypt because it seemed easier. There were Israelites going along with Pharaoh's decree. So Amram and Jochebed and the midwives and others too were standing out as people of faith, potentially at a cost. And not everybody among the Israelites necessarily would have taken the same line. So here, by God's grace, are people he has prepared for a particular role, an important role in the unfolding of his purpose. Amram and Jochebed are godly exceptions to the the lack of faith uh, among many of the Israelites. And even in that, there's encouragement, surely. God's grace can enable his people 
to stand fast in the most inhospitable situations. And that is still the case. And there are parts of the world where to be known as a Christian will end up with you in jail and possibly dead. It hasn't come to that here. Who knows what may come one day. But God's grace could keep his people there in Egypt in the face of genocide and keep them faithful. And God can still keep his people faithful. That's an encouraging truth. He's the same God. And whatever pressures and temptations we have to face as his people, God is able to keep us. And God is able to strengthen us for whatever cost there might be. We've quoted before that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God can deliver us from the fiery furnace. But if not, but if not, they would still be faithful. And the same here in Egypt. They'd still be faithful even if it had meant death for the Lord's sake. Moses' parents, godly people in a very difficult situation, but kept faithful by the grace of God. Secondly, Moses' preservation. Moses' preservation. And here's the the story that sometimes is sentimentalized, romanticized a bit. But this is hard reality. Uh, She saw he was a fine child. Now, it's hard to know what that means. The word itself doesn't really tell us. And you go over to Acts 7, and that's Stephen's defense, and a lot of it is the history of Israel. And Stephen, in Acts 7.20, says that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. And we're not much the wiser as to what that means. What did Amram and Jochebed see when they looked at Moses? They would, of course, see their own flesh and blood and all of the the parental connections, but there's something more. Uh, And maybe there aren't words to explain what the something more was that they saw, but by whatever means, they were clear that that this child had something special about him. And when he can no longer be hidden after three months, his mother makes very careful preparations, papyrus basket, place the child in it, put it among the reeds, uh, make sure it'll be watertight, all of that. And it's very clear uh, that her intention is that Moses will be found. Uh, She is not uh, sending the baby off onto the river thinking that'll be the end of him. She's expecting he'll be found. She's taking steps to keep him safe And verse 4, his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So Miriam's posted as the lookout to keep an eye on the basket and see what happens. His mother expects him to survive. She may well have no idea how it would actually work out. Uh, And I don't imagine she could have predicted how precisely it would work out. But she trusts the Lord. And there's a role for Miriam again, and she will play an important part, as we'll see in a moment. I don't know how much she foresaw, but it's an act of faith. Faith in a sovereign God. 
God will work it out. She's convinced of that, however he does it. It's an act of faith. Uh, We often quote Calvin favorably, uh, as you know. Uh, But let's for once quote Calvin in a different way, because I think he's wrong on this. Calvin uh, argues that this is a loss of faith uh, on the parents' part, putting Moses in the basket. Uh, their, Their faith failed, and they did that. I don't think it is. I think it is an act of faith. Uh, in in putting Moses in this situation and in faith trusting he will be found. Uh, It's interesting, the basket uh, that he's put in is called an ark. That's the same word that's used of the ark that Noah built way back in Genesis 6, centuries before. It's an ark. And it's hard not to think uh, that that would have echoes for the people uh, in Egypt, and for Jochebed in particular, an ark. What's an ark? An ark was something that God used to preserve his people way back in Noah's day. Obviously, it was an ark on a different scale, but the word's the same. And an ark, surely to God's people, would have suggested God's means of preserving his people. He preserved His people through the flood and the ark that Noah built. He is going to preserve Moses, his deliverer, through the ark now that Jochebed constructs. And Moses will be the one to deliver Israel from bondage. Even the word ark is significant. It's a word of salvation. It's a word of deliverance. God did it before. He's doing it again. Isn't there an irony here in what's happening? The boy child is put on the Nile, in the reeds, on the edge, but in the Nile. And that proves to be the means of preserving him and delivering him. How many Hebrew boy children were put in the Nile and that was their destruction? Isn't it ironical how the Lord is working that the means of destroying many of the Hebrew children here in this case is a means of preserving him. And of course, it's God's providence. God works out his plan in his way. We can't dictate how he'll do it or what's the best way. The Lord knows. And you see his providence working in this whole situation. There is nothing in this that is accidental. The Lord's hand is on his people here. We're not suggesting uh, that Amram and Jochebed had thought out all the steps by which their baby would be preserved. They might have had some idea, but they could scarcely have figured it the way it eventually worked out. And yet in his providence, God ensures that uh, Moses is found. From verse 5 onwards, you have the account there. Pharaoh's daughter is God's agent of deliverance. She doesn't realize that, of course. Pharaoh's daughter depends, of course, very much on the dating of these events. We've mentioned that before, uh, and scholars differ on this. It is possible, couldn't put it any stronger than that, but it is possible that Pharaoh's daughter uh, was a woman who went on to become one of the greatest queens of Egypt, Hatshepsut. 
a massive uh, temple complex in Egypt that was built uh, by her. Very famous queen of Egypt. It could be, depending on the dates, that that was the daughter of Pharaoh who came down to the river. But if it wasn't her, it doesn't really matter. But it's just interesting. God is using this pagan princess to save his deliverer. Do you see what's happening? And the providence of God, one from the seed of the serpent, pagan unbeliever, is being used by God to secure the safety of one who's the seed of the woman, from a godly believing family. It's God's amazing way of working. He should use someone like this, not a believer, not an Israelite, not one of his people, a pagan Egyptian princess, worshipper of all sorts of, of deities. And yet she is the one in God's providence who rescues the seed of the woman, the deliverer from the reeds. That's a very human response, isn't it? She opens uh, the ark, the baby cries, she felt sorry for him. She recognizes it's one of the Hebrew babies. Isn't it again the hand of God? She doesn't say, okay, into the Nile. My father said, they've got to die, that's it. But no, she is going to save him. And just a natural human response. And God uses that. God has prepared her to respond in that way to Moses. And he spared where he might easily have gone into the Nile with so many other Hebrew boys. And Miriam's role too is interesting, isn't it? She shows courage. Here is probably a girl in her early teens. She's not that old. Uh, approaches Pharaoh's daughter, one of the, uh, the rulers of the nation that's oppressing them, that's destroying them. Uh, and Miriam comes forward. And it doesn't seem that, again, this could be planned. What she says Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him? It seems in the, on the face of it that it is quick thinking. That it's God enabling Miriam to think fast and come up with, which is a brilliant suggestion, to, to get Jochebed to nurse her own child. And that's what happens, of course, and she's paid to raise her own baby. And now did Pharaoh's daughter have her suspicions about what was going on Did it seem more than a little odd that this Hebrew girl pops up uh, and makes this suggestion? Maybe she had her doubts. Maybe she saw it as a good idea and she went along with it anyway. We've no idea. But God is preserving his deliverer. God's hand is on everything that's taking place here, on the believers but also On the unbelievers like Pharaoh's daughter, he's working out his purpose in a wonderful way. That's the kind of God, of course, he is. And we can't fail, can we, to make the link between Moses the deliverer and the final deliverer that God provides for his people, Messiah Jesus Wasn't he the one who was, as a child, delivered from the attempts of an evil ruler to destroy him? Herod, in the case of Jesus, Pharaoh, whichever one it was, in the case of Moses. And there's surely a picture in Exodus 2 of something 
far greater that will happen when the Messiah escapes the efforts of Herod to destroy him. Matthew 2, for example. And interesting, isn't it? Where's the place of safety for the Messiah? Egypt. And out of Egypt I've called my son. The Messiah will come out of Egypt to provide deliverance at the cross. You see, the ways of God's working and the way he gives us glimpses way back in the Old Testament of what he's going to do again in a greater way with reference to Jesus. You can't miss it. It's as clear as day, I believe, here in Exodus 2. What God has done, he'll do again, and it'll be even greater. Moses' parents, Moses' preservation, and then finally Moses' preparation. Moses' preparation. Step by step, the purpose of God is unfolding. And you see, he has each step on the way planned. There are no accidents here. The deliverance of Moses, the finding of Moses, uh, the provision of a what appears on the surface to be a foster mother, of course, his natural mother, all of that in God's hands. And now in the early years of Moses' life, still God is working. Years of preparation as God molds and shapes Moses to be the kind of man the kind of deliverer he wants him to be. Moses has a huge task ahead of him. Massive task. And he needs to be a very precise kind of man with particular gifts. And God shapes him with the different influences that are brought to bear. There are really two strands in Moses' preparation. First is the Israelite strand. That's his early years. Now, we don't know how long he was with his natural family. We have not a clue. Commentators offer everything from 5 to 15, uh, and they don't know. So we don't know how long he spent uh, with Amram and Jochebed, Miriam and Aaron, and the whole community. Probably a number uh, of years. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter probably wouldn't be terribly fussed about having a toddler around the palace Let him grow up a bit and then take him in uh, to be her son. But for a number of years, probably, Moses spends them in an environment of faith. Part of a family uh, of faith with his parents, a godly uh, community. Uh, And no doubt his parents made good use of the opportunity they had to instruct Moses to give him a sound, a spiritual foundation as possible. Remember, of course, uh, they didn't have a Bible to take down from the shelf and uh, teach him his Bible. Moses was going to write Genesis. There was no Bible at this stage, but there's godly instruction. And he would be trained in knowledge of the Lord, the ways of the Lord, even as a small child. So much could be done. The Jesuits who said, if you give me a child for the first, I've forgotten the precise number of years, first few years, seven years probably, you've got the man. And Moses wouldn't need to be all that long in that environment 
to have the godly instruction that would shape him for life. It is very interesting. Forty years later, and that's only verse 12 of the chapter, 40 years later, he sees himself as an Israelite. So the foundations were well laid in those early years. He sees himself as an Israelite for all that he'll grow up 40 years, let's say 30 of them perhaps, in the royal palace. He's still an Israelite. The foundation was well laid. And we read in Proverbs 22, 6, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he will not turn from it. Now that is not a blank check. You cannot say every child who's raised right will be a believer. It simply isn't the case. But as a general principle, and that's what Proverbs gives us, it is true. And it can be when he is old will be the time that he turns back to what he learned as a youth. And there are those who do come to faith late in life after having turned their backs on godly instruction. But you see it in Moses' case, faithful instruction, and he's still an Israelite 40 years later. The other strand, very briefly, is the Egyptian strand. At an unknown age, Moses is officially adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He comes into uh, the highest circles in the land. Uh, He becomes essentially a a prince in the royal household. Now, remember, Pharaoh would have a lot of daughters. Uh, That's how it functioned. He he didn't just have one or two of them. It was a huge uh, extended family, really. But Moses has an important place in it. And he receives the kind of education uh, that will equip him to lead a nation. Because that's what he's going to do. Uh, and we mustn't think of Moses as some kind of, uh, of country yokel uh, who comes in and leads Israel out of Egypt and doesn't really know what he's doing. Moses had the best education of his day. And he used it well. Acts 7.22, it's Stephen again. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now that was a lot of wisdom. It wasn't believing, but it was wisdom. And was powerful in speech and action. That is the kind of man Moses became. The best education, the best opportunities to develop and to be a man of tremendous capacity to lead a nation. God prepares his servant carefully for the service that he has for him as he prepares us for whatever service he has for us, the different influences that go into making you who you are. They're not accidental. God's planned them. You're the person you are in order to serve him and your family, your education, whatever you've had, your work experience, your family, in the hand of God are to make you who you are for whatever work he's got for you to do. And he makes no mistakes. And he made no mistake with Moses. He had a great work to do. And he had a great preparation. Godly instruction in the Israelite family. Best of education in the Egyptian court. And a man of great capacity. Powerful in speech and action. 
Of course, we'll go on in Exodus 2 and we'll hear Moses saying, I can't speak. Well, we'll see what we make of that when we come to it. God had prepared him well as he prepares us. And we should be thankful for the people God has made us. We often spend our time thinking, oh, I wish it was something else. I wish it had this, that, or the other growing up. I wish it was different. But God hasn't made any mistakes in preparing you for what he wants you to do. And he won't make any mistakes. Take what he's given you and use it in his service for his glory. As Moses will.